from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. Hey, everybody. We are back with you. Here we are. Continue our journey, reflecting on life, reflecting on love, reflecting on marital relations. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> Reflect, yes. Sometimes we do. Uh, reflecting on all things theology of the body and your questions about them. And it's always important to know theology of the body is not just about marital relations. No. It's about being a human being in this physical world. What does it all mean? Mm-hmm. And art is one of the great windows into the human experience. We had an interesting experience this past weekend with yeah. some great art. Yeah, we did. We had uh, a friend was visiting and we wanted to share because we knew she would also enjoy something we had seen before, which is a special that's available on Netflix called... Called Springsteen on Broadway. Right. So, Bruce Springsteen did this show on Broadway for, I think, six months. Six months or more. And it, it was, at least one of the times, it was filmed and turned into this show so that it could be enjoyed by those who couldn't afford the tickets on Broadway. So, we really enjoyed it, and I just... Thought you might want to tell people. A little yeah, bit more we about that. we watched it a year ago when it first came out, and rewatched it with our friend this past weekend. And I've been a Springsteen fan since I first heard "Born to Run" on the radio in the 1970s. And if you've heard any of my talks or read some of my books, you've heard me retell the story of hearing that Springsteen song for the first time and how it cracked something open in me. Mm-hmm. This guy has always just sung from a place of yearning for something. And I know, I know, there are people out there who go, well, Bruce Springsteen supports this and he supports that. How can you be a Springsteen? I know, I know, I know it's, it's kind of a conundrum. But it's also a witness to the fact that we're all wheat and weeds, and there are plenty of weeds in Springsteen. You don't need to send me emails pointing them out because I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I already know. <laughs> I already know there are plenty of weeds. In sp- there are plenty of weeds in me for crying out loud. But there's also so much wheat in Springsteen and we don't have to throw the whole thing away. Watch Springsteen on Broadway. He is a master storyteller. Yeah, you'll have to put up with a bunch of F-bombs but he, he, is a, he is a master storyteller. And there's this one story he tells of being a little boy. And he's so, so insightful here. But he talks about growing up right by the Catholic Church, St. Rose of Lima, and the impact of going to Catholic schools. And, but he talks about this tree in front of his house that he loved to climb as a little boy. And I'm telling you, it's, it, for him, it was sacramental. It was transcendent. It was, he'd climb that tree and... God was speaking to him. Mm-hmm. And he comes back at the end of the show. It's like a two, and, two hour and 40 minute journey with Springsteen through his songs and stories he tells about his parents and growing up in the Catholic schools and being a Catholic is a big part of his story. Getting married is part of his story. Uh, you know, what it, what it means to be an artist is part of his story. Uh, the friends he's had, the experiences he's had the music he's made, why he's made it. But he loops back around at the end, after this two-hour and 40-minute journey, he loops back around to this tree. 
he tells the story earlier, you know, when he's a boy and climbed the tree and how much the tree meant to him. But then he's an adult and he goes back to the neighborhood and the tree has been cut down. And his reflection about the meaning of the loss of that tree is so profound. Mm. And then the way he ends the whole show before he sings Born to Run as the finale, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) You just have to watch it. (laughs) It's really profound. He has a way of having a sense of humor about some Catholic culture that is, you know, fun for both Catholics and those who are not. But his... He also has a respect for gifts that he's received through that. He and, does. And he just acknowledges it's it's in him, that it's not separable from him. And I yeah. think there's something really touching about that. Yeah, so go check it out. If you're looking for some good art. Now, maybe you have to be a Springsteen fan to really enter into the, to the layers of it. But even if you're not a Springsteen fan and you're looking for something to watch, it's good Art. Mm. Good art. Yeah, again, be forewarned. Maybe not for the kids. Yeah. He, he loves to drop those F-bombs. <laughs> well, um, shall I share some questions from our yes. listeners here? Okay. So, we have an anonymous question. To what extent can a priest grow in his relationship with a female friend? If they both understand that they have been given a deeper connection and a deep friendship that bears fruit through working together in the apostolate, are they allowed to live that love and express it through a deep emotional and spiritual friendship? Or do they have to, then the phrase is, repress and transform it? What exactly is included or excluded in a vow of purity? So these are kind of related questions mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. you know, a priest having a deep friendship with a woman. So I want to I want to just touch and then move on on the do they have to repress and transform it? So I do not like the word repress. I don't think it's a good word. We are never meant to repress mm. what is in us. There's plenty in us that needs to be transformed, but I would not connect the word transform with the word repress. I think repression is taking into our own hands maybe unruly desires and trying to squash them. And this might appear to have some success, but it's always short-term success. Because when we try to squash those powerful drives and desires in us on our, you know, just, I'm, I'm not going to think about that, I'm not going to think about that, that kind of repressive squashing, well, it's going to come out sideways. And I think this is one of the main reasons there's been such a crisis in the priesthood, because we haven't given our priests tools or a path or a vision or an understanding of the difference between repression and redemption of sexual desire. When someone tries to repress their sexual desires by just stuffing them, as I've been saying, John Paul II, I'll just quote him. He says, if that is our approach to chastity, it's only a matter of time before what we have repressed is in danger of exploding. And I think this is why we have had such a, again, not making blanket statements here, uh, by and large, the cases are statistically, you know, rare, but nonetheless, there are many cases of 
real sexual dysfunction in the priesthood because we haven't given our priests a path, a vision, an example of sexual redemption, sexual healing, sexual integration, Mm -hmm. where erotic desire is not repressed, but redirected towards the marriage of the Lamb. What does that mean? Two bookends of the Bible. We begin the Bible with the marriage of man and woman. We end the Bible with the marriage of Christ and the church. Anyone familiar with how I teach and what I teach, you've heard me say it a million times, this is the story. One leads to the other. The whole purpose and meaning of human sexuality is to aim us towards the transcendent, eternal reality of Christ's marriage with the church, what the scripture calls the marriage of the Lamb. The talk I give, I don't even know, Wendy, if you know this, but the study guide I use when I give talks to priests Mm -hmm. is called Sexuality and Celibacy, Redirecting Eros Towards the Marriage of the Lamb. Mm -hmm. And that's what the celibate witness is meant to be. Mm -hmm. It's meant to be the witness of this eternal marriage, not a squelching of eros, but a redirecting of eros towards its true object, Mm -hmm. the eternal, the infinite, the marriage of the Lamb. In this sense, celibates are a witness to the ultimate truth and meaning of human sexuality, of human love. And to the degree, this is an important qualifier, to the degree that they are living out that redemptive experience of sexuality, they are able to enter into real, genuine, human relationships. Mm -hmm. So this specific question is about what are the, can you reread some of the phrasing there? I was going to say, what are some of the boundaries required in a Mm -hmm. a relationship of a priest with a woman? What kind of love could they really have? Can you reread that? Yes. Are they allowed to express their love through a deep emotional and spiritual friendship? What exactly is included or excluded in a vow of purity? Okay. So, let's just point to some examples from the Catholic tradition. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. Deep, profound, intimate, personal relationship that was an expression of genuine purity of heart. Purity of heart does not exclude intimacy. Please hear my words correctly. Uh, Intimacy is not to be equated with genital intimacy or sexual intimacy in the physical sense, but intimacy as a a real sharing of hearts, an intimate spiritual bond. Um, Purity does not stifle that intimacy, it enables that intimacy. It's the ground on which that intimacy flourishes. Um, So a few other examples, we have John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, we have uh, St. Jane de Chantal and Francis de Sales. Mm -hmm. These are examples of, of men and women, celibate men and women, who had a profound intimate bond. There are obviously boundaries here that are, are needed. Uh, even the saints have their, their weaknesses and frailties and will be the first to say we're never fully purified till we reach the beatific vision. So yes, boundaries, appropriate recognition of human frailty, but also, yeah, the, the Catholic tradition holds this out as a real possibility that 
a celibate man could have a, a deep, intimate friendship with a member of the opposite sex. Yeah, there are concerns there. There are cautions, but we need to recognize it. Purity is real. It's possible in our climate today. There's so much suspicion, even about a priest, you know, talking with a woman or or what have you. And we can go from one extreme to the next. There is a peaceful, beautiful place in the middle where we can recognize, yes, the dangers involved in our frail humanity, but also the possibilities open to us through the healing power of the death and resurrection of Christ truly lived. I think an example of a, a boundary is openness with a spiritual director. Yes. Um, about, the, you know, if, if you feel you need to keep this relationship hidden from those who should know. Yes. And I, I'm not saying there might not be some people who don't need to know about the relationship because not everyone needs to or would understand, but certainly those to whom, especially a priest or a vowed celibate woman is accountable should be fully aware and their counsel sought in that relationship. I think we know of people who've done that and yeah. it has been fruitful for them. Yeah, very important, Wendy. If, if you're a priest out there wondering, am I crossing some border or something in a relationship with someone, put it all out in the light with your spiritual director. And if you sense, oh, I don't know if I'd want to do it, well, that would be a strong warning sign that something is not appropriate. I'd also urge you, for those questioning the real possibility of such intimacy and genuine, pure friendship, read the published letters of Francis de Sales and Jane de Chantal. They're so rich. They're so beautiful. Uh, read the conversations and, and relation, read about the conversations and relationship that John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila had. These are real people who really learned to love one another in profound holy, pure ways. So, we hold out the example of the saints. There's another question that's similar, but it relates to marriage. Okay. So, I'd like to share that one next uh, from an anonymous wife who says, I'm trying to understand boundaries with the opposite sex within my marriage. My husband is a friendly guy, and I feel that he does not shield our marriage. We've talked, and he ha is very understanding of my feelings. My question is, what insight do you have about relationships with the opposite sex when married? I guess I'm not trusting of others or how others might perceive, quote, niceness in this fallen world. I want to trust and look for the good, but I'm having a hard time. Hmm. Bless you, dear wife. These are very tender places in our hearts that these questions come from, and I, I like the way she put it. I like the the honest wrestling that she's doing. Mm -hmm. I'm remembering when we were, I think we were engaged, and I was going into graduate school. It was, uh, I was meeting new people, and I, I really liked this girl, Jeanette, who has been in our lives now for 20 plus years, 24, 25 years. And, um, but yeah, I was engaged to you, and mm -hmm. I I was wrestling with what are the what's the right. I had never been engaged to anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the boundaries of my friendship with this person, Jeanette? How can I honor you as my fiance and future wife? And I remember kind of nervously talking to you about it because mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't know what was mm -hmm. 
what were the right boundaries? And mm-hmm. and you, you, well, do you want to share what you said? Do you remember what you said? I don't remember what you're about to say, so go ahead. So I put it to you. I, I again, put it out in the light, just mm-hmm. as you were saying earlier, Wendy, this is a, mm-hmm. always put it, this is one of the indicators in a marital relationship that you would be crossing boundaries if you are afraid to put it out into the light with your spouse. Mm-hmm. So, Rule number one in the discerning of all of this in relationship with the opposite sex, someone other than your spouse, is the relationship you have in the light, totally in the light with your spouse. So I was putting it in the light with you Mm -hmm. as my fiance. And you said, well, of course you can have a friendship with her. There's nothing wrong in and of itself with your being friends with her. And I, I remember kind of a weight coming off of my shoulders and, and a, a joy, like, whoa, my fiance trusts me and I need to learn. This is an, a new territory for me. This was 25 years ago, but it was a new territory for me. I want to learn the, I want to learn how to do this. I want to learn how to have friendships with, with members of the opposite sex. And she became a dear friend of both of us, right. which was a tremendous aid in keeping that relationship in the light mm-hmm. and in the right perspective and uh, we're to this day dear friends with her and her husband and that's been a great relationship that the four of us have developed we've also along the way had to talk about things where I didn't respect some boundaries emotionally and got too close to this person or that person but again putting that in the light with you Mm -hmm. was what kept it from going you know south in a <laughs> horrific kind of way with me and with your confessor right with me and my confessor yeah. my spiritual director so we're going to have these tugs we're going to have these pulls towards other people we're going to find other people attractive intriguing how do we how do we navigate all that honesty with one another honesty with your confessor your spiritual director but i think we do need to underscore it there are dangers here but there are also real possibilities of genuine relationships. Um, and holding, you don't want to go from one extreme to another and say, because there are dangers, therefore, you should never talk to another person of the opposite sex. That would be a, you know, that would be a kind of a, a fearful, suspicious approach to human mm-hmm. relationships. John Paul II says we have to be aware of that interpretation of suspicion mm-hmm. where we, we don't really believe in the real possibilities of genuine relationships. At the same time, infidelity is not just a physical thing. You can give your heart to someone in a way that is an offense against your marriage. And uh, yeah, we've we've had to work through that territory as a married couple and be very honest with one another and recognize where, yeah, we stumbled here, we stumbled there. Uh, keep it in the light, trust in God's mercy, and keep going. And one of the things that maybe is a, 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 not the exact same issue of our own genuine struggles to be in a right relationship, but I think one of the things she's picking up on is that wondering whether, and I'll have to say that the way the question is worded, it could be interpreted different ways, so I'm not sure if what I'm hearing is really what is being said, but something that an image I had was sort of of a husband who's not so much struggling with maybe attraction to or even excessive closeness with an other women, but a friendly, more yeah, like the way that he maybe expresses 
friendliness. What did she say? He's he's especially friendly or especially. Yeah, he's a friendly guy, he's a and she also guy, uses yeah. the word niceness. Yeah. That that maybe I, what I'm wondering is whether, as a woman, she's watching her husband's behavior and thinking how, oh, if I were a woman, sure. how would how that would I, oh, what would, sure. how would that affect me? Yeah, or. Other people watching the way you are treating these women, what are they thinking? Like, like point, that Linda, his yeah. outward expression might be misinterpreted either by the woman or by other people. And this is causing a caution, even aside from whether there's anything actually wrong Good in the point. relationship. Yeah, I, think, I think you're probably right that she is getting it at that. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing as a woman to kind of as a man and as a woman, to educate our spouse yes. about some of the reactions that they might not know are maybe common in, in the opposite sex. So, not that we know perfectly the heart or mind of the specific person that is in question, but but in a general way, which is maybe innocent on your part, could be perceived differently. Like you helped me to understand that nibbling on a stranger's earlobe is, is probably I did, not, I did. not I had appropriate. To, I had to tell you not to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think you were so receptive. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, it was an eye-opener for me. I had been doing it for years. And oh, my love. You are so silly sometimes. So I think... Um, Sorry, I just... Um, Sorry, lover. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, yeah, that that we are called to that, and I hope that there's an openness on your husband's part. It may be, you know, that it would be good for the wife to ask some other people if she's concerned that she's maybe overreading the situation and get that perspective, you know, amongst your own, say, your own family members who are around your husband. What do they think? Just to... Educate yourself whether you're being sensitive about something that could be a problem or actually really yeah. isn't. So the, the point behind my stupid joke about the earlobes was I do remember <laughs> times where you've had to enlighten me about the psychology of, mm -hmm. of a woman, just how they think and how they receive things, and vice versa. I've yes. had to enlighten you on this the is psychology a mutual of, need for education. Of men, yeah. <laughs> mutual need for education about how members of the opposite <laughs> sex think yes. that we are ignorant about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, put it, put it in the light. Put it, the light is our friend. That's what I have to say about that. I like it. And we have a question from a listener named Mark who asks, what does the Catholic Church teach about circumcision what does the catholic church okay this is this is really goes back to the earliest one of the earliest papal decrees from the first pope saint peter uh, but before we talk about that i, I want to tell a funny story that father tom loya tells father tom loya who is coming with us on our pilgrimage to the holy land we are off to the holy land in february i've never been can't wait to go and uh, he's a Byzantine Catholic priest, and in the Byzantine church, they have these, uh, in the different liturgical seasons and feasts, they have certain uh, proclamation and then a response. So during the Easter season, it's Christ is risen, and then the response is, I think, He is truly risen. He's truly risen, or mm -hmm. Christ is born during the nativity. Glorify him. Glorify him. And then, 
on he says <laughs> he says on the feast of Christ's circumcision, it's Christ is circumcised, and the response is ouch, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Um, so, what does the Catholic Church say about circumcision? Circumcision. What an interesting, profound, scary, painful reality. So, in the Old Testament, let's just try to enter into this for a moment. In the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant is that men are meant to slice off the covering of the most intimate aspect of their anatomy. What the heck is that? Ouch. What is, ouch, what is going on here? Abraham, I want to establish a covenant with you. And I want to, it says right in the scripture, I want to inscribe a sign of this covenant in your flesh. Cut that skin off of your penis. What, 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 what? What's going on? Okay, well, what's the promise of the covenant? Uh, fertility, fertility, many children. Offspring, offspring more numerous than the stars. Who's going to see the sign of this covenant and when? The wife. During their marital union, mm-hmm. which is the fulfillment, brings about the fulfillment of this covenant. There's something going on here. Here's my sense of it, that to participate in the covenant love of God, which is what we're meant to be doing in the marital embrace, demands of us the sacrifice of flesh and the shedding of blood, the giving up of our very bodies and the giving up of our very blood. This is already written into a woman's body. Mm. She bleeds every month as a sign of this. But the man is more removed from that process. He can plant his seed and go his merry way. But I think God is saying, no, if you want to image my love, if you want to participate in my covenant love, you must remember that it demands the sacrifice of flesh Mm. and blood. And Mm -hmm. zakar, the Hebrew word for male, also means in Hebrew, remember, Mm. remember. The mission of the man is to remember God's covenant love. Now, if we go back to the beginning, before sin entered the world, the man, Adam, was made in the image and likeness of God. He was made to remember God's love, and he did that before sin came into the world. He never forgot before sin came into the world. Only with sin did he forget. So you don't need the circumcision of the flesh when you remember. Adam forgot. Abraham and his descendants needed that circumcision of the flesh to remember, to come back to who they really are. In the New Testament, there was, in the Acts of the Apostles, there was a controversy. Do the Gentile believers first need to be circumcised before they can become Christians? And the papal decree, after much controversy and discussion, no, they do not need to be circumcised in the flesh because there is now a circumcision of the heart. Mm -hmm. Remember, the body is a sign of something interior and spiritual. Mm. The circumcision of the flesh is really an invitation to the circumcision of the heart. What is the circumcision of the heart? Well, well, think, what's the sign? What Mm. does the physical reality say? Exposing the most intimate aspect of your physical anatomy is a sign 
of the call to expose the most intimate place of your heart. Mm. And this is what the Christian life is. The Christian life is the reverse of Adam's fear. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. That's what scripture calls an uncircumcised heart. Mm-hmm. That fear, that hiding, that, that, uh, those protective walls we put up. The circumcised heart is the, the heart where the walls have come down. It's the heart where the defense mechanisms have been taken down and the heart is exposed and is open to God's infinite love. We can only be circumcised of heart if we have faith in his love. Otherwise, we're going to stay protecting ourselves. We're going to stay afraid. The whole Christian life, in this sense, is a journey of circumcising your hearts. And this means reversing Adam's fear from, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself, to, I was at peace because I knew he loved me, so I exposed myself. I allowed my heart to be exposed. I allowed all the coverings to come off, all the fig leaves to be removed. I allowed my heart to be circumcised. If that's of the very essence of the Christian life, then the circumcision of the flesh is no longer required. And this was the proclamation of St. Peter, the first pope. Mm -hmm. Circumcision of the flesh is no longer required. So, that's my answer to Mark's question. What does the Catholic (laughs) Church teach about circumcision? There you have it. (laughs) It's been since the earliest days. It's not required. Is there any other further recommendation one way or another that you have ever heard? No, I don't don't know of, I mean, other than the fact that the church holds in profound reverence the circumcision of Christ, Mm -hmm. which we should really, as painful as it may be, the church invites us to meditate on the significance of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about it. it. We shrink from this because it's just too fearful, painful, weird, odd, uncomfortable, fill in the blank, whatever it might be. We shrink from this, but it is bedrock Catholic teaching, bedrock Catholic vision of the universe. Redemption happens through the shedding of our Savior's blood. Mm. And where did he first shed his blood for us? Our salvation begins not with the blood of the cross, but with the blood of our Savior's loins, his bleeding loins. On the eighth day, he was circumcised. That eighth day is the day of the new creation. Right? Creation came in seven days, according to that beautiful symbol from Genesis. The eighth day is the first day of a new creation. Mm. This is the day of our redemption. This is the day of the giving up of flesh and the shedding of blood of our bridegroom. This is foreshadowed and first established, if you will, in the circumcision. Mm-hmm. And it leads us to the circumcision of his heart, which was, in a sense, physically rendered when that lance was Mm -hmm. thrust into his heart on the cross. And many artists, mystical artists, will trace the flow of blood from his open side, from his pierced heart, that flow of blood, blood will be traced 
over his loins, over the wound of his circumcision, to connect in, in the art, to connect in our hearts, really, the two circumcisions. Mm-hmm. What else does this tell us? It tells us <laughs> there is a profound connection between our loins, our genitals, and our hearts. I think that's something that's really striking me as you're sharing that about, especially when you shared about the papal decree that it's no longer necessary because of the circumcision of the heart. I thought, you know, it just was really kind of deepening my appreciation of that in the redemption of our bodies, like there's this restoration of that connection of our genitals and our heart um, that was just being spoken about in scripture, you know, um, that, that that's what the Lord desires that we experience that profound connection and that how much that guides our purity, our, our sexual morality, but also our ability to receive grace through holy marital union, for example, because of that restored connection that God always intended for us. Really beautiful. Yeah. Two more thoughts I want to share, and then we'll we'll wrap this up. But one is, you know, the circumcision image obviously is a masculine image, but there is a corresponding image in Scripture as well of the spiritual labor pains. Here we could speak of a, a dilation of heart, mm-hmm. and both are meant for both. Men are also called to dilate their hearts. Women are also called to circumcise their hearts. Mm-hmm. Both are meant for both. But obviously, one is more fitting as a female image, and one is more fitting as a masculine image. If circumcision of heart is the exposure of the heart, dilation of the heart is the opening, the widening of the heart, the stretching of the heart to Mm -hmm. receive the infinite love that God wants to pour into us. Those are some painful labor pains right there, to stretch your heart to the point of its capacity to receive the infinite That's going to be some serious dilation. So, Scripture speaks of these spiritual labor pains. Final point I want to make. If you're asking me my personal opinion about whether you should circumcise your boys, no. (laughs) No, don't do it. Do not do it. And this came, my conversion on this point came from you, my love. You'll remember this when you were pregnant with our first we waited to know if it was a boy or a girl, but we were having all these conversations when you were pregnant. If it was a boy, should the baby be circumcised? And I was of the mind that, like father, like son, why not? I was circumcised, and you as a nurse had witnessed mm-hmm. several circumcisions and started telling me about what you witnessed, and you asked me to read some articles about the practice of circumcision and how especially it's done here in America. And uh, what I read answered some lifelong questions I've had, and, uh, yeah, I became very quickly... a uh, no, I don't want to circumcise our boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so read up on it. And there's even a documentary on Netflix you can watch about circumcision in America. You could look that up if you want to get more educated on it. I became, <laughs> even my stuttering there reveals some of my emotional, uh, the emotional power of this subject in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, be, I have become a strong believer that Circumcision, as it's practiced in the United States, is rooted in puritanical fear of the male body and not in anything religious or essential. 
Nor having health benefits. So Nor having health yeah. benefits, yeah. So that's my thought. Okay. Well, on that note, <laughs> thanks everybody for listening to us share with you our thoughts and reflections. It's a joy for us to do it. Keep the questions coming. If you want to learn more and become a patron of this work, we would be so grateful for your ongoing support. And in return, we want to support you in your mission by providing you ongoing formation in the theology of the body that we only offer our patrons. So give that some thought. There's a link there to learn more. We love doing this. We're so happy to be on this journey with you. Never forget, you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. When we were, I think, we, yeah, we were engaged, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, Mark, edit this out. I gotta get a drink. <laughs> I just think we're gonna hear that I at the end we're of the podcast. A little gargle yeah. sound. <clears throat> <laughs>